History, according to Luke 19, Part 1, spoken by Pastor Peter Ahn. Do you remember a time when somebody kind of caught your eye? And you liked them a little bit, and you kind of wanted to grab their attention. Remember the kind of effort you made so that you could see, so that they could see you, or at least pay attention to you? When I first met my wife in college and I started to have feelings for her, I really wanted to grab her attention. And so for me, I started doing some things that I normally didn't do as much. Uh, I spent a lot more time in front of the mirror. I made sure I grew myself. I shaved every single day, even though I had no facial hair, but it still made me feel like a man, right? So I shaved every day. I put extra gel in my hair, go to the gym, make sure I work out a little bit so that maybe my muscles would kind of impress her. And, uh, and my, sort of my secret weapon in hopes that she would pay more attention to me was really my cologne. Dracar. Guys, ever use, anyone use Dracar in here? You're probably Italian. All right, all right, here we go. All right. So, I mean, that was it. I was hoping that if she, as, as, you know, I'd see her and we'd talk, that she would smell it so that hopefully she would remember me by that smell. That was the hope. And uh, it worked. I got her, right? I started dating her and we eventually got married. And I think, like, when we want somebody to pay attention to us, we do make an extra effort, don't we? We kind of make sure that we try to do some things so that they can pay attention to us. You ever thought about that with God? Have you ever tried to grab the attention of God, his undivided attention? Some of you are struggling to even hear that today because perhaps maybe you think as long as you get down on your knees and you pray to him that you grab God's undivided attention. That's really not so. In fact, Pastor Kevin taught us last Sunday uh, about prayer. He talked about making the ask, and he said that in order for us to make the ask, what's really required is a certain posture, right? He says in order for God to really hear you, you have to approach him appropriately, desperately, boldly, continuously, humbly, and with faith. And so even when you think about prayer, you can't, just because you pray doesn't mean that God's going to pay attention to you. There's a certain posture that you and I need to have. And some of you in this room today, you really need God's undivided attention because you're going through some things in your life. You desperately need him to pay attention to what's going on in your life today. How do we get it? How does God pay attention to us? How do we warrant the undivided attention of the God of this universe? We're going to look at Luke chapter 19, the very famous story of Luke uh, with uh, Jesus and Zacchaeus. And through this story, we're going to learn how we can grab the undivided attention of God. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 19. We'll look at verses 1 through 10. 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed the sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. 
So God, we come to you today, and uh, we ask you, God, that you would help us to learn, help us to see the beauty of your word. God, that our lives can be transformed as we just open up the Bible and look at a text. And so I pray that you give us a yearning and a passion for the word of God. And even in this story, God, I pray that we would learn how we can grab your undivided attention. And for those in this room that might be ambivalent to hearing that, God, I pray that you would show them that there's no other way to live than to live a life, God, where we can grab your attention. And so, Lord, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, God, I pray that it will be pleasing unto you. And all of God's people said, amen. All right, so how do we grab the undivided attention of God? The first thing we learn in the story is that we grab the undivided attention of God when we have a heart for the misfit. All right? When we have a heart for the misfit, we will grab the undivided attention of God. The best way for us to really know what's, what God notices is really to figure out what's in his heart. And we find that Jesus has a heart for the misfit. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, verses 17 and following, Jesus announces the purpose of why he's here, why God brought him into this earth. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, who is a misfit. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, again, who is a misfit, and recovery of sight for the blind, again, who is a misfit, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This was the purpose, the very mission that Jesus came here for, because Jesus has a heart for the, for the misfits. God has a heart for the misfit. Now, who is a misfit? What is a misfit? What makes somebody a misfit? Well, the working definition of a misfit is defined as such, a person person whose behavior or attitude sets them apart from others in an uncomfortably conspicuous way, all right? A misfit, it's somebody who often feels like an outsider. Maybe it's because of the way that they behave, the way they look. Maybe they have certain disabilities that's very noticeable. And so as a result of it, they're not necessarily accepted by our culture. They're often feeling like outsiders. I don't know how many of you felt like that growing up. Some of you might have immigrated to this country. And you know how when you first immigrated to this country, it was very difficult for you to feel like you belonged. You felt like a misfit many times. You felt like you just didn't belong. And so a misfit oftentimes are people who are on the fringes of society that the world has not really accepted into the cultural norm. That's a misfit, right? And Zacchaeus was a misfit. Make no mistake about it, even though he was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy and had some power in the Roman government, he was still a misfit, right? Because back in the first century, just because you're rich, it doesn't mean you're necessarily accepted. How you got rich was just as important of you becoming rich. And so because Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, he had other tax collectors under him. And they would go out and they would charge people and, 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 and ask for payment for their taxes. Now, they would not only ask for the, the, the amount in which the Roman government was asking for, but they would also add on a certain percentage on top of that so that Zacchaeus could make a commission from it. And that's how he became wealthy. He basically became wealthy by cheating his own people. And so for the Jewish people, they did not accept Zacchaeus. In fact, in, on the social totem pole, a tax collector was on the same level of a wit, of, as a widow and an orphan. And you know widows and orphans were on the very bottom of the social totem pole. So likewise, the tax collector was also at that level as well. Zacchaeus was not accepted by his own people, and therefore when he was trying to get, catch a glimpse of Jesus, what happened? They created this barricade. 
They didn't want him to see him. Just because he was short, it wasn't just because of that, but they kind of judged him already and said, you are not worthy to even catch a glimpse of this rabbi. And so they created this barricade for him not to see him. And so for some reason, though, we find in the story that Jesus has a heart for the misfit. Jesus is in the business of taking those on the fringe, and he brings them to the center. That's what Jesus is all about. He's about taking those who are on the fringe, and he often brings them to the center, right? And we find even last week for Jesus, he takes the blind beggar. Those, he, was on, he was on the fringe, and he brings them to the center by telling the disciples, he says, please bring them here. We find a few weeks ago when I preached a sermon on, remember when, when, uh, when the parents were bringing kids to Jesus? And as they were doing that, the disciples were saying, what are you doing? Don't bring him to Jesus. And what did Jesus say? He said, stop. He said, bring those children to me. In fact, these misfits, if you can't be like these misfits, he said, you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has a heart for the misfit. Do you? Do we have a heart for the misfit? So much so, I think, you know, you know, the best way for us to have a heart for the misfit is? is for you to realize that you are a misfit yourself. Do you know that you're a misfit? The Bible says that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, doesn't it? That's what the Bible says. So we've all sort of fallen short. We've all been sort of on the fringe because of our own life. But God came in his mercy through Jesus Christ, came and forgave us of our sins by dying for us on the cross and resurrected from the dead. And as a result, we've been saved by God. And so we're a misfit as well. We're broken just like any other misfit. And the best way for us to have a heart for the misfit is to realize that we are one as well. Amen? Turn to your neighbor and just say you're a misfit to them right now. Declare that because it's important. Jesus has such a heart for Zacchaeus. What happens? He decides to go to his home for dinner. And then what does the, how do the people respond to that? They start to judge him, don't they? Look what it says in verse 7. It says, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. If you ever want to grab the attention of God, you got to have a heart for the misfit. You really do. Have you ever wondered why misfits love Jesus, though? Why were they so attracted and drawn to Jesus? And why were they so repulsed oftentimes by Jewish spiritual leaders like the Pharisees? You know what it was? It's one thing. Jesus accepted misfits. See, if you ever want to have a heart for the misfit, it goes even deeper than you just tolerating them. Because a lot of us, we le- we've learned to tolerate misfits. But you have to learn to accept the misfit. Because if you, you, you can't love someone unless you actually accept them. And that's a real important word for you to hear today. Because I think for us as a church, when we encounter a misfit, maybe even here in our community, what we've learned is we've learned to kind of tolerate the misfit. But we've never learned to really fully accept the misfit for who they are. Now, that's a whole different level. And, you know, like this idea of misfits, a lot of times we, when we talk about this and we say we like to be a church for the misfits, that was actually part of our slogan in the beginning. We said Metro Community Church, a church for the misfit. A lot of times people thought that was a really cool thing, but really it's not. It's hard. It's hard to be a church for the misfit because oftentimes when God brings people from all walks of life into our community and who might be really different from us, it's not very easy because if you really want to accept someone, you don't just tolerate them. You have to love them. That means you have to talk to them about some things that actually might even hurt their feelings, that's going to make you feel uncomfortable. 
If somebody comes to our church and they love our church, but yet they have a mental illness perhaps of, of bipolar disorder and they want to serve in our children's ministry, we as a staff, we can't just say, okay, well, give it a shot. Because we know that someone with that kind of potential mental health issue can pose a threat to our children. And so we got to get them psychologically evaluated. And when our psychologist says they should not be near children, and we have to actually have a sit-down conversation with them and say, you can't serve in the children's ministry because we got you evaluated. And they said no. And just based upon that, we can't. And you know how angry and upset they get because they do love children? That's not an easy conversation to have. If somebody struggles with personal hygiene, a lot of us, we just think, well, we'll just tolerate them. But if you really love somebody and accept them, maybe you should sit down and also talk to them. You see, Jesus here declares that Zacchaeus achieved salvation. He went a step further. He didn't just tolerate him, but he went a step further. Remember the story in the Bible when uh, Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees who caught the woman in adultery in the Gospel of John? And they bring her there, and they want to stone this woman? And Jesus says, if any of you are without sin, then be the first to cast a stone. And all of them walked away because they were sinful. And Jesus says to the woman, hey, um, are you, did anyone throw a stone at you? She said, no. Then what did Jesus say? He says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. You see, that's acceptance. True loving, encouraging, sharing our heart, learning to accept the misfit, and caring for them in that way. You know, too much in the church, we throw that word love around, but we don't support it with our actions. We just tell people, oh, I love you, I love you. You gotta be careful. Because when people hear, I love you from a Christian, they get very cynical about it. Because we like to throw that word around without truly understanding the depth of what that means. It means that we have to learn to accept one another. The church is called to be a place for the misfits. Because Jesus Christ had a heart for the misfit. And we have to be willing to do the same as well. Oftentimes the church is a place anything but for the misfit many times. Everyone's so beautiful at church. When you watch those YouTube videos of different churches and their worship services, do you see some of the folks leading worship? They look like runway models. They're beautiful. They're like literally perfect. Every single one of them. And there's sort of this image of the church that it's a place where perfect people come together and it's anything but that the church is a place for imperfect people, misfits like you and me, to come together so that we can be accepted by God but one another, so that we can live together and be in communion with one another. Amen? That's what the church is about. And so please, could I caution us? Be wary of creating cliques because cliques are the greatest producers of misfits. When you create a clique, a group of people that you only want to hang out with in this church, what you're doing then is you're creating misfits because you no longer make them feel like they're a part of our church. And so we have to be careful with that. We really do. We have to be careful with creating cliques. You always have to think, even though you're in a group and you love being a part of a certain group, you always have to think about the outsider and say, can we still welcome people to be a part of what we've experienced here at our church? That's what we try to encourage our our small groups, to always be open to inviting more people to be a part of it. I know sometimes we want to just stay together, but we have to always think about, are we inviting people to be a part of this group? Otherwise, then we become the greatest producers of creating misfits in the church because we make people feel like outsiders. We do that. Talk is cheap. We can say we love people, but unless we're willing to truly love them by accepting them, We'll never have a heart for the misfits. So then the question that I have for you today is this. 
Who are the misfits that God has brought into your life that you need to learn to accept today? Who are they? I'm sure some of you can sit down today and come up with a few names. Who have you made an outsider in your life today that you know that God is calling you to embrace, to love, and to care for, and to accept them for just who they are? You grab the undivided attention of God, and you have a heart for the misfit. God has called us to do that. The second thing we learn here in the story is that we grab the undivided attention of God when we go to the extreme lengths to connect with him. When we go to extreme lengths to connect with him. Look at verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So, and underline this Verse 4, it's a great verse. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore fig tree to see him because since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. For Zacchaeus, for a tax collector, a chief tax collector with some power, even in the government, to run and climb up a tree? It wasn't just improper, folks. It was degrading. It was undignified. People of Zacchaeus' status should never run and climb up a tree to see someone. It just doesn't go. It just doesn't happen like that. So Zacchaeus was willing to be undignified. He was willing to become a fool for Jesus Christ. He went through that extreme length. And when you and I are willing to do that, God never pays more attention to us. When was the last time you were undignified for God? When was the last time you were willing to be a fool for Jesus Christ? A lot of us, we just want things to be comfortable, easy for us. We don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to be undignified. We don't want to look like a fool for Jesus Christ. We just want to look good. It's not easy, right? And so for a lot of us, this is something area that we struggle with. And so for Zacchaeus to run, jump up a tree, it caught the eye of Jesus. He was so focused on, he couldn't believe that this guy was willing to do this. And therefore, he invites himself over to his home. Last Sunday, we find that the blind beggar, he was sitting by the road. Again, a misfit considered to be one of the dregs of society. And what does he do? He yells out, Jesus, Jesus, have mercy on me. And everyone says, shut up. You shouldn't be calling his name. And what does he do? He becomes more extreme and he yells even louder to get the very attention of Jesus Christ. He was willing to go all the way for Jesus Christ. He really was. He was willing to go all the way for Jesus Christ. Your discipleship, your, your decision to follow Jesus Christ must have within it your desire to wanting to go all the way with Jesus. Wanting to go to the extremes of connecting with our God. It has to. If it doesn't, then faith is just meaningless. So how do we go to the extreme with God? How do we do that? Is it about fasting regularly? Maybe, but really not. Is it about going on maybe a missions trip, go away for a few months maybe or a few weeks, and you feel like God moving there and you feel like God's paying attention to you because you, you went to that extreme? It might, but that's not it either. Is it about preaching a great sermon? Is it about that? By the way, did, how many of you were at Martin Luther King celebration this past Monday? 
We did a march. It was amazing, right? And then we did a joint service with Ebenezer Baptist Church and Pastor Sanita. Woo! She preached a sermon. Honestly, you got to watch it because it's online. I put it Martin Luther King-esque. I'm not being sacrilegious by saying that. It was that good. And I said to her, I said, yo, Sunita, can you preach like that at Metro? She says, I don't know. I don't know if I can. Do you know how we can get Sunita to preach like that? You got to be generous with your amens. All right? If you could be generous with your amens, I'm telling you, she'll come up here the next time she's slated to preach, and she will give you good old-fashioned black Baptist preaching. And it's amazing. I'm telling you. But you got to be generous with your amens. All right? So practice with me. All right? Practice with me right now. I want you to be generous. If there's any truth that you hear, just shout out amen. Praise the Lord. Interact. Because as you get warmed up for that, then when Sunita comes, you're going to hear some amazing preaching from the sister. It was so good. I was sitting up in the altar. I didn't know what to do. It was so good. But even a great sermon like that doesn't warrant necessarily God's undivided attention. It doesn't. So what is it? How do you, you and I... Go to the extreme so that we can grab the undivided attention of God. You want to know what it is? It's to, it's, it, and it's offensive to some of you. This is really extreme, and it's going to offend a lot of you. Do you know what it means to go to the extreme of following God? It's to follow him on his terms, not yours. If you want to go all the way with Jesus Christ, if you want to live your life to the extreme with God, it, what it means is that you have to be willing to follow Jesus according to his terms and not yours. You ever wonder why God's not ever there for you? You ever feel like you're alone? It's because for the majority of us in this room, you want to just live your life according to your terms, and you don't want to live it according to the way God has outlined for you and I to live our lives. You see, if you decide to live your life according to God's terms, I guarantee you, you will look like a fool. People will say some stuff about you. They'll say, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you doing all this stuff? You will look like a fool, but it's okay. Because for Jesus and for us to go all the way with him, to live our lives to the extreme, it's okay to look undignified. It's okay to look like a fool. It's okay if people look at you and don't think you're cool. I mean, I know what it's like on a Monday morning, going to work, and if somebody says, hey, what'd you do yesterday? I know what it's like when you say, oh, I went to church. <laughs> kind of say it very quietly. You don't want to say it too loud. And, you know, maybe if God moves in your life, I mean, you could be very honest. Like, yo, I went to church and it was awesome. But we just kind of downplay it because we're just a little, you know, we don't want to proclaim too loud that we went to church on Sunday. I get it. But listen, if you don't start living your life according to God's terms, You're not going to ever get his attention. And for a lot of us, we have lived our life in such a way where we've altered it. And you know how to live for God because we know what the Bible teaches us. But we live it according to our ways. And then we expect God to come and bless it. But that's probably the most umbilical thing or life uh, lesson that you sort of implement in your life thinking that's how you're going to live your life for God. God is not going to do that. And so we do that all the time. And if you want to go to the extreme length of serving God and living for him to the extreme, it's about living our lives according to the terms of God and not yours. Will you do that today? Let's just talk a little bit about sex. 
I'm going to talk to the single community here for a moment. A lot of us, we want to live our lives according to our terms and not God's. And so we will have premarital sex. We will engage in sexual activity. You have believed that sex is just a recreational activity and it's just something that you do. Everyone does it so you can do it. And now we live in a time where there's apps where you can download like Tinder. And if you right-click that app, you can have sex with a stranger like this. It's crazy what's out there now. I mean, back in my day, you actually had to work for that stuff. Now you just let an app do everything for you. So it's dangerous, and I get it. But listen, if you continue to believe that sex is just a recreational activity, then you have no idea what you're doing. When you're sleeping around with other people, you are absorbing and receiving whatever spirit that they come with you to with, and you bring it into your marriage eventually. And you don't think you absorb their evil spirits? You don't think evil exists in people? We all have spirits, oppression, demonic oppression. When you have sex with a stranger, with anyone, you absorb all of that and you bring it into your other relationships. And so if you take it so lightly and just deem it to be a a physical activity, then you're never going to be able to live your life according to God's ways. And so let me just be sensitive because I know, I know what it's like to be in your 20s and 30s and you're just raging, your hormones all over the place. I get that. And listen, I understand that you will fall, but if you fall by God, can you just confess it in front of someone so that they can help you and keep you accountable to that? Some of you say, well, you know what? I'm engaged to this person, so it's okay that I have sex with that person. That's wrong too. You know, Pastor Kevin mentioned that, and I said, Kevin, why is that wrong? Talk to me more about it. You know what he said? It was amazing. He said, if you think it's okay to have sex before you get married to somebody, even though you're engaged to them, then you're saying that it's okay to have sex before marriage. So then when you do marry that person eventually and you guys get into a fight, then your spouse is going to wonder, is he going to go out now or is she going to go out and have sex with somebody else because they thought it was okay to have sex before marriage before. I never thought of it that way. And so we just have to be careful. Can you give your life to God in a way where you try to live your life with sexual integrity today? Can you? Can I talk to you about living together? So many Christians today are just choosing to live together with their boyfriend and girlfriend. Again, that's your way, your terms, not God's terms. The New York Times came out with an article a few, weeks, a few years ago. It's, a, it's a, a social study. And they said that couples who live together before they get married have a much higher risk of getting a divorce. And I'm sure if you guys read that article, you're thinking, whoa, whoa, that's, that's crazy. It's in the Bible, man. You shouldn't be living together. Honor God. Try to live your life according to his ways, not your ways. And a lot of us, we just want to live our life according to our desires. We just want God to sprinkle his blessing on it. That's not how it works. I wish it did. It's not how it works, right? Can we talk about tithing a little bit? A lot of you have decided to not tithe. A lot of us. And as a result of that, that's your way of living, not God's way. Because God wants you to tithe because he knows how much money can destroy your relationship with God and with other people. Jesus talks about money 19 times in the Gospel of Luke. But nothing will destroy your relations with other people and God than money. And tithing to the church, and it's important for you to tithe to the church. That's a biblical teaching. A lot of us, we say, well, I'm going to tie to other organizations and stuff. That's your way again. It's not God's way. 
And when you tithe, when you, when you tithe to the church, what you're saying when you're tithing is you're believing that everything you have is God's. And you're honoring God with all of your wealth by giving that 10% to the Lord in that way. So that it protects you from the damage and the lore and the attractiveness of money. Now, for some of you in this room, you, you might be unemployed. You might be really struggling financially. God understands if, you're, if you can't tithe. Because you're not bringing in enough to live, to pay for your just living expenses. God understands. That's called grace giving. But there's some of you in this room, you make a good income, and yet you still choose not to tithe. I don't know what else to tell you guys. Honestly, I don't. But that's your way of living. It's not God's way. And that's why some of you are just in such incredible debt. Because you can't honor God with your wealth. And therefore, money has a control over you in a way that you can't do anything about it. When you go to the mall, you have to buy something. You honestly have to buy something. Going to the extreme with God is letting the gospel alter and transform your lifestyle. Not allowing your lifestyle to alter the gospel. That's important for you to realize. So how has following Jesus changed the way you live? Because if you ever want to grab the undivided attention of God, it's for you and for me as people of God to do our very best to live our lives according to God's terms and not ours. The most extreme thing that Zacchaeus did wasn't climbing up that tree, Metro. It was coming down from it and listening to Jesus and following Jesus according to his terms and not his own. Because if Zacchaeus had his way, he wouldn't have invited him to his house because he wouldn't have believed that a rabbi would even enter into the home of a sinner like a chief tax collector. But he followed him on his terms. That was the extreme thing that Zacchaeus did. It wasn't just him climbing up that tree, but it was him receiving the invitation that Jesus gives to him. Will you go all the way with God today? Will you allow God to form your life, your lifestyle in such a way where you can live it according to his ways and not yours? Otherwise, you live your life watching your back all the time, worried because you live your life lying, right? And, you know, just for the whole, if I can just go back to the sex thing, it's just as hard for married people. In fact, single people, if you think once you get married, you're not going to struggle with sex or lust, you're in for a rude awakening, man. It's just as worse, if, if, just as bad. And for married couples, if you've already cheated on your spouse, and whatever means you did, you know what that lifestyle feels like. You're always worried that you're going to get caught, and you hate lying all the time, and even though you come here on Sundays, you get convicted by your lifestyle, but you can't seem to change it. It's living your life according to your ways and not God's ways. And then you never live with that kind of freedom and peace because you just think you can do whatever you want. And listen, I know we're going to fall. We're not perfect. No one is. You're all misfit like me. But if you do, you have the decency to confess it so that somebody can keep you accountable. You see, sometimes even our way, sometimes for a lot of us, when we create sort of our version of how we want to live our life for God, sometimes it could be real beautiful. It could seem pretty proper. And that's what it was for me. I got my calling to be a pastor when I was a senior in high school. I received it with a glad heart. I did. But when I got to college, I was just like, oh, man, I, I am not cut out to be a pastor. No, no. I, 
I sinned too much. I had too many issues, came from a broken family. There is no way. I, it's like I heard God wrong. And so for me, it wasn't that I was going to leave the church. No, I said, I'm going to serve the church. I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to give. I'm going to tie to the church. I'm going to serve as a leader. I'm going to do whatever I can. And so when I graduated college in my early 20s, I served my church with all of my heart. Fridays, I was in single people in my early 20s. I mean, I don't want to brag, but I have to a little bit. I was at church on Friday nights at my youth group service because I was an 11th grade teacher. I wanted to be with my kids. Saturday, all right, so I did prayer meetings every day at 5 o'clock in the morning. And then Saturday, I had my, I, I led worship. So for the adult service, so I had my worship team come to the 5 o'clock prayer meeting. They hated me for it. And afterwards, we practiced at 7 a.m., and then we had brunch, and I came home like 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Sunday, I got up early, taught youth group. Then in the afternoon was our service. I would lead worship. I got home usually at night because we'd fellowship afterwards. I would lead a small group during the weekday. Church was my life. I was tithing 10%. I was doing everything right, and I just thought that was all God would want of me. What more could God want from me, right? But Metro was my way. It wasn't God's way. God had a calling in my life. And I just thought that wasn't for me. And so I created another way of living, but I had no peace. I felt like I, there was something that was holding me back. And, you know, pursuing this life of ministry hasn't been easy, but I tell you, the thing that it's given to me is that it's given to me freedom and it's given to me peace. And you can't buy that in the world today. Because you're doing what God's called you to do. It's not easy. It's hard. But God will be with you if you choose to follow him according to his ways and not yours. Some of you, I'm touching a nerve right now. And it's a good thing. And that's not me. It's a spirit. I hope you'll allow that to, to sort of settle in your heart. And you'll be able to process that during the week. And start to ask yourself, God, what are some ways that I could begin to live for you more according to your ways? and not mine. You have freedom, and you will have peace. Amen? Amen? Third, we grab the undivided attention of God when we allow God to redeem our wrongs. God wants to redeem your wrong today. Look at verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. God today wants to redeem your wrongs. He doesn't just want to forgive you of your wrongs. He wants to redeem you. He really does. There needs to be a redemption to the wrongs that you and I have committed against one another and against God. And so a lot of us, when we think about sinning and when you think about asking God to forgive you, because you know what you have to do as a Christian, you need to ask God to forgive you. All you think is just the forgiveness part is all you need, and then you're just good to just kind of live in your life again for God. Um, that's not how you get God's undivided attention. There needs to be some fruit that needs to be bared after you receive God's forgiveness. That's called redemption. That makes making a wrong a right. Now, what's the fruit that God is looking for? What do we see in Zacchaeus? It's generosity. You see, when you've experienced the generosity of God forgiving you of your sins through his rich mercy and grace, what that does normally, it allows you to become generous to other people as well. 
that you won't be so stingy of your time, your talents, and your treasures, but you become very generous. Whenever I meet really generous people, I know that these people have been redeemed of their wrongs. Because only ge- the generosity comes from God. It doesn't come from the devil. It doesn't come from your flesh. Because everything about us is not generous. It isn't. When I get into a fight with my wife, I want to be right, even though she's right. We're not generous like that. We're just not wired to be generous people. It's part of our brokenness. But when we become generous, it is a testament that your wrongs have been redeemed by God. And God wants to redeem your wrongs today. He does. What's it going to take for God to redeem your wrong? Because he wants you and I to be generous like Zacchaeus. Because Zacchaeus gave 50% of his wealth to the poor. And he paid back the people he took money from. He paid back four times the amount that he took from them. That's how generous he became. His generosity, Metro, hear me well on this. His generosity led him to live a life of poverty. This man who was wealthy, because he experienced the richness of God's mercy and grace, because God redeemed him, he became so generous that he gave 50%. Back in those days, if you gave 20% of your wealth, that was considered tremendously generous to God. This guy gave half, and he paid back people who he ripped off four times. He chose a life of poverty because he was already rich in God. You see, the problem with a lot of us is that we think financial wealth is the way to live, and that's being rich. No, it's not. It's overrated. Being rich in God's mercy and grace. If you have that, you are the richest person in this world. Money is so overrated. And a lot of us, we run and we love the money. We'd rather live for that money. We've compromised our integrity. We've compromised us wanting to live for God and follow him on his terms because we want to be wealthy. We want to have that. Zacchaeus realized that it wasn't worth it anymore. He realized the kind of life he lived because of money. He ripped people off. Nobody accepted him. He had no community. He lived his life in isolation every single day. He realized this is not worth living. And when he came in, count, when he came in touch with God's grace and mercy, he said, I'm going to give it all away because at the end, Being rich is about being rich in God's mercy and grace. Generosity. Today, God wants you to be generous. Because when you and I become generous, we have been redeemed of the wrongs that we've committed against God. And he wants us to do that. How do we grab the very attention of God? You've got to have a heart for the misfits. You know, there's over 2,000 verses in the Bible where Jesus and God specifically instructs us to have a heart for the misfits. 2,000 verses in the Bible concerning the poor and the oppressed. We have a heart for that. We grab God's attention, undivided attention. Are you willing to go all the way to the extreme of following God today, meaning following him on his terms and not yours? And will you let your wrongs, will you let God breathe life into it so that he can redeem you so that you can be generous. I have two older sisters. Um, my second oldest sister is Susan. Susan is about five feet, 10 inches tall. Oh, there she is. Big Korean woman. She is so strong. Growing up as a little child, she was extremely spiritual. She always prayed in front of us. And when we got together for dinner, she'd remind us that we need to pray. And she would often offer to pray. I don't know about you, but that's pretty exceptional. Like my kids, sometimes I say, can you pray? They're like, why do I have to pray? I prayed yesterday. I'm like, what? Is this a punishment? It's not a punishment to pray. I, my sister voluntarily prayed. 
she always reminded us to pray to God. She had a spiritual life that my parents were so overwhelmed by. They were impressed by it. I was too. But when she got older and her learning disabilities became more noticeable and she had a pronounced stuttering issue, she eventually stopped going to church altogether. And I had to write a paper on my family on the spiritual journey for this class in seminary called Family Therapy. And I got to my sister, and I remember just writing it, and I started to realize this, and I started to rewind the tape of life at church and how so many times she wanted to find community with the ladies. She would go and sit next to them, and of course, they wouldn't just get up, but they would tolerate her for a few minutes, make small talk, but then they would all get up and walk away. And she would often be by herself, sitting on the chair by herself. She called them sometimes. She'll get their numbers through me because, you know, they're, I know they're brothers. She got the, you know, there was no cell phones back then. There was no caller ID. She called them, and I can just imagine they received the call. And like, oh, okay, hey, what's up, Susan? They talked to her for just a little bit, and then they just would hang up on the phone. Wouldn't talk to her at all. Growing up with a learning disability in a Korean culture that values intelligence and education so much, you can only imagine how hard it was for her to feel accepted in a Korean community. She wasn't. She wasn't. And I'm so grateful because the two communities that really opened their hearts to her was always the African-American community and the Latino community. She ended up marrying a Puerto Rican man. And I remember just sitting there writing this paper, and I just started getting so angry with the church. I said, you know what, God, the church is horrible. Like, the church is terrible. They didn't accept my sister. How dare they? And then in that small, still voice of God, he said, you know, the reason why your sister isn't a Christian today isn't just because of those people, but it's because of you. Because you have not really accepted her. And God was right. Because siblings always get into a fight. I would always fight with her. She's only two years older than me. And whenever I wanted to win the fight, even if it was a verbal, most of it was always a verbal fight, all I had to say was, Susan, you're so stupid. You're so retarded. And she would just be silent and walk away. I never thought about how much that really hurt her. And when I was sitting in that library writing that paper, God showed me how much I probably hurt her because of that. When she came down on Sunday morning and said she wasn't going to church, I was so relieved. Because for some reason, every time she went to church, the youth pastor always called her to read the Bible. And whenever she read it, she literally stumbled over every other word. And she would just embarrass me, cause me so much shame. I didn't want to be associated with her. So when she came down on a Sunday morning and she said, I wasn't going to church, I said, great, thank you, God. And I went to church so happily without her. She didn't really have any friends growing up. And so once in a while, I would let her hang out with my friends. My friends would come over. And so she would hang out with us and stuff. And, and she loved having a little bit of a social life. But I'm her little brother. Who, what little brother wants to hang out with their sister? And so many times I, I walk downstairs and I know because she's watching TV and I know she wants me to invite her to come out with me. She wants that. And I'll just go downstairs. I put on my shoes and I'll just walk. I won't even look at her and say goodbye because I didn't want to feel guilty of not inviting her with me. And when God revealed to me at that library that one of the reasons why my sister isn't a Christian today and she stopped going to church, it wasn't just because of these Christians but it was because of me, that broke my heart. I wept at that library, I don't know for how long, but God showed me the wrong that I committed. 
And when I finally got myself together, I went outside in the library and I called her up. And I said, Susan, will you please forgive me for what I did to you? And I just said, please don't think that's how God sees you. God loves you so much and I am so sorry for not accepting you in that way. Please. And of course, my sister, that generosity of her heart, she forgave me. She goes, stop, don't worry about it. It's okay, Peter. I said, Susan, you'll be more spiritual than I will ever be. Because you've always accepted people in your life. You've never ostracized them. And when I came in contact with that wrong, you know how God redeemed it? This church would not have been here today if it wasn't for my sister's life. Because God gave me the vision for Metro. My dream for this church has always been from day one. My dream is for my sister, people like my sister can come here. And they can find a home in this church. And not only can they find a home, but they can have friends with somebody who went to Harvard, Columbia, Penn, you name it. And that she can actually have a friendship with them. That they wouldn't just judge her because she didn't go to college. And not only that, my dream is for people like my sister to lead a small group. And that you would submit yourself to her leadership. That's the picture of heaven and the kingdom of God. That's what it's about. And if God didn't show me that wrong, and if he didn't redeem it, the vision of this church wouldn't have been here. This would, I wouldn't have gone the vision for Metro this way. It would have just probably been a country club. Not a church for the misfit. Will you have a heart for the misfit today? Will you have a heart for those that are depraved of love in our society and they're dying to receive it? In some capacity, will you let God break your heart for the misfit today by accepting them? Will you begin to live your life according to God's terms and not yours? Will you do that and experience the freedom and the peace that God wants to give to you today? And will you let God redeem a wrong in your life today? He might have forgiven you, but he hasn't redeemed it yet. May he redeem you the way Zacchaeus was redeemed. When we do that, We have God's undivided attention. May you live your life according to those ways. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer.